Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. In this episode, I continue my conversation with Zen monk Drew Schaefer. We talk about Zen and nonviolent communication and the importance of using language to better reflect reality. We discuss Zen's emphasis on ordinariness, its rituals that I find annoying, its views on hope and God, and what his Zen meditation practice exactly comprises. If Buddhahood is already everything, why practice Zen at all? Is spirituality all about becoming at ease? What is non-attachment and its relation with technology? How do you square psychedelics with the Buddhist precept of no drugs? What is the potential of love and sex to heal people? We discuss D.H. Lawrence's writings about the dehumanizing nature of modern civilization and the book Drew is writing about his honest monastic experiences as a horny 23-year-old boy in a Buddhist temple. What is Zen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. oh my god, <laughs> I don't even know. I think that maybe one answer to that would be that yeah. Zen is whenever you're being honest about who you are. Hmm. Zen is not about being what some idea of a good person. Zen is about when you're afraid, being honest about saying you're afraid. It's about, yeah, just being... Being honest about who you are means part of it, a big part of it for me is like letting go of stories. Like if I'm in a painful circumstance, then the, the, the monkey mind automatically comes up with ideas of like why this person, like what's wrong with this person? Like, who, like, they're not, they're not acting right. And then, I think that the authenticity of Zen is to first off start with yourself. There's a saying from Dogen, Hmm. who's one of our, one of the founders of Soto Zen, turn the light inward and illuminate yourself. Like, so, Hmm. nowadays, Hmm. instead of, my first impulse nowadays thank God, is instead of going off on the story of the other person, hmm. is whenever I notice that happening, I just say, like, I am in pain. Yes. Like, that, just being able to say that is what hmm. Zen is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so many people, you just watch people talking in coffee shops, just complaining hmm. about hmm. all these situations that they can't change. Hmm. And it's just like, they're... It's just like, I view it as, as they're kind of like disembodied ghosts. Like there's, mm. there's this pain that's not being owned. It's like a ghost mm. that's like seeking for an owner. And like, th- that's one way to interpret some of the more like mythological language of, of Zen. I, I feel like that's a very accurate image. Like there are so many things in our life that pe- people just avoid through through alcohol through complaining about third-party things and again that's not saying you shouldn't try to fix 
the any situations but if mm. you're not able to say like i am in pain like that's mm. honestly like the f that's the first noble truth mm. that's like the start of the path yeah. that's um like that's kind of yeah <laughs> that's if you're not able to admit that um then you're kind of then you're just lying and yeah but there are reasons that hum i mean human beings become conditioned by society to right to act in that way i think when we are children uh -huh. um, i mean pre-verbal this is the most intense like when you, we are children we have no recourse but to submit ourselves completely to our emotions mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. at some point as we grow older right. maybe when we are still we can say you know it hurts or i'm crying or whatever but then at some point, I think it's like the socially conditioned slash, you know, this ego comes in mm -hmm. where it yeah. feels too vulnerable to just say to people how you're feeling. Right, right, right. So then all of the consequent dialogue and finger pointing and blaming, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the place where it really comes is coming from is a lot of pain. Right. But, right, right, right. but we're not really confronting that pain. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean to a great extent is because of how we have been repeatedly conditioned by other people acting the same way. So we have to kind of unlearn that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It is hard. Um, what this reminds me of also is, have you heard of this book called Nonviolent Communication? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was a bit That's of a an eye-opening book for me yes. where uh, Marshall Rosenberg talks about uh -huh. in a situation like that's kind of stressed conflict situation, Focus on what's going on with you mm -hmm. instead of trying to diagnose or judge what the other person is doing, why are they doing it. And I read that book. I was like, oh, yeah, I totally understand what you're talking about. But it is hard to do. Right. It is. I read the book and then I was like, I tried to do it for a little bit. Uh -huh. And then it feels like there's just this very deeply worn groove of mm -hmm. how I communicate. Uh, right that I kind of keep going back to and it seems like in order to keep going to what you were talking about right. which is this authentic right. owning and claiming and just openly uh -huh. saying this is this is what my experience is is going to kind of remain a continuous like it's like swimming upstream you have to like <laughs> keep doing it against 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 the flow of the current yeah I think uh, that um that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your practice. I think that yeah. that's the case for everyone. Yeah. To, to be a Zen practitioner is just to be devoted to returning to that practice. Like we, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any yeah. fully enlightened human being who is that way all the time. Yeah. And uh, the meaning of enlightenment is to keep returning to that aspiration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I feel like since we were talking about this, we will kind of break our initial plan and it talk about this other topic that you mentioned because it seems intimately connected to this, uh -huh. which is language and reality. Yeah. For you, it seems like also because of your previous life experiences mm -hmm. where it seemed like a lot of barriers were put in the path of your honesty and right. your honest self-expression, right. the honesty and authenticity oh. part of Zen Buddhism is something that resonates with you a lot. Yes, 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 yes. In fact, I was actually surprised when the last time I came to the uh, the Austin Zen Center, mm -hmm. I asked you a kind of like bottom line question. I was like, you know, you've been in this uh, Zen uh -huh. Buddhist world for a long time. Uh -huh. 
how would you say it has impacted or transformed you? What uh-huh. would it, there's like one big thing that you've taken away. I was surprised by your answer mm-hmm. because your answer was, it has really made me uh, think more carefully about the language that I use mm-hmm. and be and, and let it stick more closely with the reality of living. Right. And I thought, right, right, right. yeah, I mean, I've heard of in, in, in like other forms of Buddhism also, I've heard of the, you know, the right speech aspect, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I didn't think that would be the central thing to take away. <laughs> At least that has not been the yeah. case for me. It has been one of those things where like, oh yeah, it definitely kind of goes along with what else you're practicing. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of those precepts and things like that. Mm-hmm. But this guy, he's like basically been like kind of like a career professional uh, Zen Buddhist for a long time. Uh-huh. He's been meditating. Uh-huh. He, 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 he comes away with saying that the right speech part is the most important. I was a little, little bit intrigued. Now uh-huh. I'm getting a uh-huh. bit more of a fuller picture. Right. So let's talk a little bit more about the importance of language. Right, right, right. You know, when it comes to something like meditation, to me it feels like meditation is a much more like intense and core thing. And language is like kind of a peripheral, extraneous thing. Mm. In this 10-day silent meditation, you don't even talk. Right. So language seems like a more like surface level thing that mm-hmm. is used only to communicate with other people. How can that be such a core principle? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I think... I, I don't think that there's a distinction between um, uh, this is one, one example so the, the distinction that we have in our language between the, the core things and the peripheral things I, I don't think is true like that's the, mm. that's basically to my, in my mind the teaching of no self like mm. there there is not like a core that's separate from the way I am functioning in this moment and the mm. way in this moment, I'm functioning as, as a verbal being. Mm-hmm. Like, th- this is what I am in this mm-hmm. moment. There's not, like, a mm-hmm. core behind that. That, ah, okay. uh, like, yeah, this is this is in this moment my yeah. uh, my essence. See, the, I do feel like the, yeah, my idea in my head is different from that, which is uh-huh. why we're having this exchange here, is I feel like language is kind of a more peripheral thing that is driven by the core essence of mm-hmm. what emotions are coming up and, mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Right. So language is something that is tweakable in a way that the core huh. reality of what I'm feeling is not. Uh-huh. So language for me is downstream of the core. Uh-huh. But you're saying that, no, that's like a, not a real distinction. Th- that is part that's part of what i'm saying yes yeah 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 mm. i t- to me as well like what you so, so those emotional experiences which you are naming the core mm-hmm. and uh the way you use your language there i think the reality of it is that they're they're co-creating each other yeah like um like using false speech will poison your core mm. It's and having a poison core will encourage you to commit false speech. Yeah. Um, like there, it's not that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's not like there's a, m- me behind my words, and mm-hmm. the words are just kind of a, a a minor attribute. And I think that, yeah, that that sort of um, the valorization 
of the way you are in this moment mm. as the fundamental of who you are mm -hmm. is kind of what encourages that everydayness of Zen. Like, when, when, when you realize that there's not, uh, like, I am literally nothing but what is happening right now. <laughs> like, that, there's not a, a Drew hovering behind me mm -hmm. from which all of these things are kind of like mm -hmm. side attributes. Mm -hmm. Like, when you realize that, then, the, then this how I treat the stick is yeah. the most important thing. It's not that. Yeah, yeah. It's not the stick is no longer an instrument towards trying to make my core self feel better. It's like mm -hmm. the stick is absolutely the fundamental point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm holding a stick. <laughs> note, note to listeners. I'm waving it in the air. Yeah, as a lot of Zen monks are. Yes. <laughs> that it is the stick of Zen. As we are talking about this, I also realized something. Uh -huh. You know, when I mentioned, oh yeah, there's like this core stuff of uh, the emotions and everything. And I regard that as more core and language is kind of on the surface. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons is that there is this conditioned disconnect between, you know, the emotions and the language that is used. Mm -hmm. And so the emotions yeah, are coming up totally. as what they are. Right, but right, we right. seem to have this malleability that uh -huh. we can either express that truthfully or we can not express exactly. it. Exactly. So and that reifies the, d the yeah, disconnect. Yeah. So I feel like what you're saying is that if you make the two, if you like... Bring them together. Yeah, harmonious. That the language is actually constantly expressing the authenticity. Right. Then that core and peripheral thing consequently vanishes. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah... I, I, I personally really enjoy concrete examples, so I'm going to share a concrete example of mm. when I was inauthentic. Mm. When, when I was with my last girlfriend, mm. um, and the one the one I went to England with, uh, yeah. I, I mentioned that, right? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah. Uh, there was one time when we had... Uh, so, so we had just moved into a new apartment where we... We were intending to live together in this apartment, and mm -hmm. uh, we had not yet had we we had not yet bought bath t or towels hand towels to dry our hands with in the restroom, and she just had so so she she brought a roll of paper towels from mm -hmm. from the kitchen mm -hmm. into the restroom for us to use, and she was like, oh, we can just use these paper towels, and mm -hmm. I can be sometimes kind of almost a little obsessively like oh, trying to avoid waste and like very eco-conscious mm -hmm. and and i f i felt um i would have much prefer preferred for us to just wipe our hands on the the bath towel that we use to dry our bodies mm -hmm. and uh but i was not comfortable saying that i was um that i that I disagreed with that decision because I felt that it would make me look petty. That was my ego mm -hmm. coming in. There was the idea that expressing my uh, desire for us to dry our hands on the bath towels instead of the paper towels, I, th I had the judgment that that would make me look petty. Mm -hmm. And so I repressed my feelings and I lied and I said that I, that's okay. We can wipe our hands on the paper towels. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. And she noticed she she was also a zen practitioner very mm -hmm. sensitive woman mm -hmm. and she she noticed like 
I think you're not being honest. She said, I think you're not being honest with me. Like, you actually <laughs> are. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, yeah, and I appreciate that she was, we had a relationship where she could say that to me. And mm. it may seem like, what what's important about, mm. like, oh, like, it's just paper towels. No, I get it. I get it. I, you don't need to convince me about okay. what's important here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll just say it just for mm-hmm. the listeners. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's like when you... Um, being able to be honest about who mm-hmm. you are, no matter how petty it may seem, mm-hmm. like, for that's you kind of respecting yourself as Buddha in that moment. Like, that's what the, part of what that means, mm-hmm. to respect yourself as Buddha. Like, not to say, oh... If you're saying, oh, Drew, you should not be this way, like you, you need to be a different way. That's not respecting myself as Buddha. Mm-hmm. Respecting myself as Buddha is to be honest about the fact that I have these feelings, no matter how mm-hmm. petty they may seem. Mm-hmm. And petty is just a judgment. You don't yeah. want to judge Buddha. You want to respect Buddha. Mm-hmm. And um, and also, when when you do allow yourself to be seen in that way, you uh, that opens you up to let someone care for you. What, even when you're supposedly being petty or supposedly being, yeah, small-hearted or whatever, like when you are able to admit that and then have someone ca- care for you in that way, that's what genuinely makes you heal. Yeah, that, yeah. so please respect the Buddha in yourself. Mm. And hopefully you'll find that people can respect that Buddha as well. Yeah, this part where he said, allows someone else to care for you Mm -hmm. i'm kind of interested in that because Mm -hmm. i feel like one of the areas that i have a lot of room to grow in personally Uh is vulnerability yes yes that's very important so for example how would such a thing let me think about it because i've had similar issues like i am also like Sometimes I can, okay, not sometimes. I feel like pretty much all of the time, uh-huh. internally in my mind, I'm like uh-huh. very serious about this waste thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I feel like a lot of my concerns would definitely be seen as like very like tiny and mm-hmm. petty by other people. Mm-hmm. And multiple times I have suppressed them mm-hmm. or I have made some other excuse for why, mm-hmm. you know, you know, uh, man, yeah, why I don't want your plastic bag. Oh, it's free. Oh, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh. yeah, and I don't want to go and start telling them about oh, but what about the waste and everything? So right, right. Uh, so I understand that part. The part that I do not get is where is there the opening up an opportunity for the other person to care for me? Right. So, so in the example with my um, relationship with my girlfriend Lucy, mm-hmm. um, she, she in in that instance she was able to say like oh like that's so that's okay for you to mm. have that feeling. Mm. Um, wh- whereas I had kind of had the judgment that mm. I would need to, I, I was judging myself as petty and, yeah. and by, um, by hiding that, mm. I was basically saying like, I will not give this part of me the opportunity to feel love because Lucy responded it to it with love yeah she responded to it with acceptance yes in that case that is what happened but yes. the thing the reason that a lot of the times we are obfuscating our true mm-hmm. feelings is to mm-hmm. protect ourselves for from what we think is the pro 
the other person is not gonna like this and it's gonna right, be hard right, for right. me to hear them say oh yeah yeah that you're pretty petty mm -hmm. and so we don't want to so exactly. what do we do if that happens so in that case well you just do the exact same thing you respect the buddha and yourself by saying i am afraid of judgment from this other person mm. and then from there mm. you either and, and then life continues from there once mm -hmm. you acknowledge so, so you have the mm. pettiness and the f you, you, you have the thing that you're judging as petty mm -hmm. and you have the fear that exposing that mm -hmm. will cut will um, cause you pain mm -hmm. and then if you are able to respect at least to yourself say I am in fear mm -hmm. it doesn't always need to be mm -hmm. a social thing yeah. it can just be within yourself yeah if respecting the, the fear mm -hmm. yourself respecting yourself as fearful Buddha mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That, and then you'll see from that point whether yeah, yeah. you feel comfortable. Yeah. Having no, uh, okay, I'm talking about like the slightly uh, the different scenario where you know you actually say okay. that hey I'm not okay with uh, paper towels, mm -hmm. and the other person has a negative reaction to that. The reaction that you feared. Right. And uh -huh. in, that case, to, in that case, in that case, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. Um, respect myself as. Pained Buddha. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and at that point, uh, yeah, D and then I I learn how to care for myself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I have exposed myself. Mm. I've experienced pain because of it, and then either I decide mm. the way to care for this pain is to take some space to myself, or yeah. to have a conversation about how the other person hurt me. Yeah. And or some other variety of other methods, like yeah. just keep returning to at least to yourself yeah what what your emotion is in that moment and that yeah. will provide the ground for you to care for that authentically whether yeah. that's by exposing it verbally to another person or by yeah more subtle inwardly yeah, yeah. I, I do resonate a lot with what you're saying i've seen like uh different versions of this play out in my life like many many times and the thing that I'm kind of realizing but I cannot always follow through is I realize that even if the other person has a reaction to that the one that I fear mm -hmm. it's still in the long run better off for me to be honest because the <laughs> internal conflict dissipates uh -huh. and I might have like pain and fear in that moment right but in the next moment I feel like well, I'm kind Just, of proud that, you know, yeah. I, that I was clear and honest with myself. Right. And it feels like my love towards myself flows more freely then. Right. And it kind of seems like, okay, the fact that that person was not able to take it, it becomes not really so much of my problem anymore. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that's very helpful for me as well mm. is to also, so th there is the turning the light inward, acknowledging my own emotions, sharing them sometimes mm -hmm. when I feel safe to do so. And then mm. there's also being able to be clear, like I'm in pain and also this person did do actions that are yeah. not in keeping with right speech. Yeah. Like not just blaming it on yourself, like other people yeah, yeah, yeah. giving yourself permission to acknowledge when yeah. other people have shortcomings without excessively blaming them, just kind of factually <laughs> blaming them. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Yeah, factually acknowledging. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
I want to kind of go on to the uh, like the next section which, where we were talking about mm -hmm. two aspects of Zen Buddhism. Okay. One is one is the stress on ordinariness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We kind of already talked about this a little bit. Right. In that my understanding, which is kind of you know what makes Buddhism quite special to me uh -huh. as compared to some of the other world religions uh -huh. is that it invites you to come back to the simplicity of boring old ordinary life yeah especially <laughs> zen is big on that yeah and that's very interesting because i feel like i have kind of disillusioned by the grand promises of a lot of world religions mm. which is pointing to something coveted something magical mysterious but always something that's over there right and right, right, right. and and there's some kind of a figure at the head of this god or some power or whatever from which all of this world is being sourced and this world in which we are is only a shadow of that mm -hmm. whatever platonic ideal or right. that is whereas that honestly seems just want to say that seems meth like a very close analogy to what you were saying with mm -hmm. that uh kind of like the, on, on the metaphysical scale that seems like an analogy of what you're saying mm. like your actions being a shadow of yeah. your real self rather yeah, than yeah i see uh -huh. that's interesting uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah okay yeah that's interesting and so zen seems to be bringing back the emphasis of what's going on now yeah that's and all of this going on here yeah and so in connection with that what is the role of the rituals because i will admit right. it i right. actually mentioned this a little bit is that that's something that kind of annoys me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about zen buddhism mm -hmm. because the thing that i find you don't have to convince me about this anymore is the meditation aspect i'm like oh i'm just gonna sit in my cushion i'm gonna do this thing and it's 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 self-evident truth that's mm -hmm. coming out of the meditation Whereas the rituals is something that, you know, when I was growing up in India, Hinduism mm -hmm. has a lot of rituals. I was always kind of turned off mm -hmm. because there are so many rules and there were often no right. explanations for right, the rules. Right, right. It's just that's how religion is. You just got to get with the program mm -hmm. and everyone gets with the program and you feel some kind of harmonizing tribalism from we are all doing this ritual together mm -hmm. and we don't question it and you whatever. So that's how I viewed rituals. And then eventually when I started getting into Buddhism, I was like, wow, this is a much more empirical, straight path. Mm -hmm. And then when I got into, well, I didn't get into Zen Buddhism, but mm -hmm. I did start coming to the Appamada Zen Center in right. Austin right, right. during their morning meditations. And that's when I first saw, whoa, what is all this? So why do people wear this thing? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like bowing and chanting, people right. saying things in languages that they, you know, that they don't understand. They're sewing these things and then they uh -huh. wear these bibs. So right. I was like, wait a minute, Zen, you're breaking my heart. Uh -huh, uh -huh. You're doing this ritual uh -huh. thing. And then the last time I was here, we were kind of having a conversation about this. And I was saying that, you know, it's, I find it kind of annoying. And <laughs> another person said that, you know, that's the point of it is you were sitting there then watching yourself being annoyed. <laughs> what, what better thing? And I was like, okay, there's a point of that. But is that 100% of the reason for the rituals is just to present some annoying thing? Then oh, I might as well... Yeah, yeah just start banging my head against <laughs> the wall there's no greater significance uh -huh. to those particular rituals uh -huh. than anything else uh -huh. <laughs> yeah so what do you think yeah so i think that so everything we do 
in some sense is a ritual like right now there there is kind of a like there there is a container for this conversation this is mm. like we have we're sitting across a table there's a microphone here mm. like the, these are like in some sense ritual forms like they're the ritual forms of going to a fast food restaurant like you pull up in, in your car mm. you state your order mm-hmm. you pay you mm-hmm. drive to the next window you get mm-hmm. your order mm-hmm. like these things all again they're not they're not separate mm. from the deep values that are going that are inside of us from the mm-hmm. deep feelings and values that are inside of us like the fast food restaurant example like i would argue that that's kind of a both a reflection and a a um kind of factor contributing to a culture of 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 greed of unconscious consumption of uh yeah of yeah just not paying attention mm-hmm. of uh yeah of convenience uh being the most important thing and i think that part of the reason we have these these rituals is because they have been designed and tried by people for years to be ways of using your your body um, that encourage the values of reverence of slowing down to notice your life mm-hmm. like like zen, the form the rituals that we have in a Zen Buddhist temple are exactly the opposite of the ritual that you use to go to a fast food restaurant like yeah. it's yeah. these things bowing yeah. Like, it's something that tries to bring you into contact mm-hmm. with the people around you. Mm-hmm. Like, just being able to sit upright and hear each other breathing in mm-hmm. shared silence. Like, that's something that is designed to promote, like, connection and reverence toward the people around you. And yeah. especially in regard to food. Like, mm-hmm. we have in Zen Buddhist temples... Uh, this style of eating called oryoki. Are, are you familiar mm-hmm. with that at all? It's um, it's absolutely the epitome of, of ritual in Zen. Mm. So, you um, at Tassahara, three meals a day. You are in the meditation hall. <laughs> it's so <laughs> there's so much happening in such a short period of time. It's almost hard to describe. There's there's a loud drum that and uh, and some kind of wooden blocks that people hit as kind of percussive instruments mm-hmm. and they happen in unison everyone turns around picks up their bowls mm-hmm. raises them above their heads you sit them on the meditation platform in front of you and everyone in unison is untying the knots you place largest bowl on the left then the middle bowl smallest bowl First the, f- first, the chopsticks facing to the right, then the spoon also facing to the right. And then once everyone has their bowls set out, you uh, servers come in and they go pair by pair to people. Everyone bows, place the pot of food down, you hold out your bowl, they get a ladle and they serve you into your bowl until you give them a certain silent hand gesture to stop. Mm. And all of this is honestly just to promote intimacy. Mm. Like, 
intimacy with the way your body is, um, food being at the absolute core of this. There's no way to actualize the connection between more human beings. Well, besides, okay, that and sex, (laughs) like actually feeding someone. When you take someone's Oriyoki bowl in the toll silence, having known these people for months, it's it's almost like holding a baby. It's like you the being able to serve someone. That's like part of the gift that this silence allows you to to notice. Like notice just how much of a gift it is to serve someone. Um, and if if you're just casually walking down to a table and just like plopping yourself down there's just no way you can notice the connection at that deeper level Mm. like the silence and the the ritual are both there to make it as likely as possible that you can notice the profound love Mm. that's happening in that moment of Mm. you being served food and you serving food Mm -hmm. and that's something that you can notice in your everyday life as well but it's just harder to to do it without the support. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. Well, well, thanks. Now I have... Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, I appreciate now that you actually, like, sat and, like, kind of broke down uh-huh. some of the reasons right. behind this. Yeah. Because that makes it a completely different thing for me than just, oh, here are the rules. Mm-hmm. I just follow it. Don't ask questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that... Um, yeah. I, I think that there, there is some merit to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that pe- people may say that mm-hmm. not to like make... I, I'm hoping... Mm-hmm. So, so we do sometimes say in Zen, like, don't ask questions, just do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that that comes from a place not of mm-hmm. trying to control you and make you do these things, mm-hmm. but just so that you're not trying to intellectualize them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, the physical experience is what's important. Yeah, like, I get that too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, because a lot of the time, you know, you may not be able to intellectually figure it out first before you agree to do it. Mm-hmm. But if you just start doing it after some time, like, oh, this is how this makes me feel. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about hope. Okay. And Interesting. Hope. What is in your understanding Hmm. Zen's view of hope because hope is like a big deal in a lot of religions you know right and what is your personal view on hope two different questions right yeah um hmm Zen does not talk a lot about or emphasize hope Mm -hmm. I I almost never hear Zen teachers talk about hope Mm-hmm. Um, I hmm, hope <laughs> hmm. a part of me feels uncomfortable talking about this mm. because I, I'm not a Zen teacher and mm. I feel a little like I, I kind of dislike talking for Zen. Yeah. Like, I'm not an ordained teacher or anything. Yeah. But um, I, I feel... So, so 
I'll, I'll talk about my own personal view first. Yeah. I tend to view hope as a distraction, as mm -hmm. something that's um, taking me away from the moment. Mm -hmm. I experience it as something that is kind of an unhealthy energy, mm -hmm. as something that uh, kind of takes me away from the ordinariness. And uh, yeah, and I'm not sure if that's totally true all the time though. I There have definitely been times when I've been in great despair mm. and I have felt like uh, yeah if I didn't believe that things were going to get better then mm. who knows what I would have done <laughs> yeah 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 so I don't know that hope is always bad in every situation yeah but I think that it can be dangerous mm. to um, yeah, to devote your mental energies towards imagining how things could be. Like, mm -hmm. like, that's something that needs to be taken with a lot of space. Yeah. I think. Um, so you mentioned something that's kind of tricky in that the role of hope in really dismal situations. Right. right so right. in a previous podcast interview, I was talking to this girl who is very Muslim. Okay. And is also a therapist. Mm -hmm. And she kind of emphasized the central role of hope in islam oh wow that this this world this world is kind of like a shadow world mm. and that you know a lot of the reason and meaning and purpose of the things that you do is because if you do these things you're going to be in god's world like you know it's about the afterlife mm -hmm. and so hope is like a central principle in you know it's also in christianity because it's like this world is not the end game right the end game is where you end up being uh -huh. and so hope is a very central theme in like let's right. say christianity right, or right, right, in right. islam so i yeah, during yeah. that conversation with her i pulled out this book that i was reading called peace is every step by tichnat han uh-huh tichnat han where he was talking about how hope is, you know, a distraction from the present uh -huh, moment. Uh -huh. And was talking about how it takes away the energy from the present moment and puts it into this, like, imagination called the future. Right, right. And as I read this, I made her a little bit upset. Because uh -huh. <laughs> I was basically trying to uh -huh. confront her with this, like, kind of uh -huh. opposite view. Uh-huh, right. Um, <laughs> and she was like, you know, if you had met a lot of the people that I have met uh -huh. who are going through such difficult times, mm -hmm that hope is, you know, the only thing that they can rely on, then maybe you would not have this perspective. Hmm. I think that Thich Nhat Hanh has met a lot of people in very desperate situations as well. Yeah. So what is your perspective on what should be the role of hope for a person who's really going through a very fucked up time? You said that you know, in that case, uh -huh. is hope permissible? But in my mind, hope cannot be like one of those things that you just pull out of a hat sometimes. Right. And at other times you say, oh, right, right. the future doesn't matter. Because then the it's like the game is over for you. Like, you know, if you've decided once and for all, hope is yeah, not a real yeah. thing. 
then in, in, in really bad times, you couldn't be like, hey, wait, I already decided that hope is not that. Right. You have to either like, right, you know, right, be right, in right, it right. Or, or be out. Right, right, right. So for me, right. I guess the only other kind of alternative that I could, that I could try to construct is in really dismal times. Instead of trying to focus your energy on how better things could be in the future, right. there are a couple of other things that you can do like, for example, you know, really inhabit the sensations in the body and see, yeah. okay, this is what's yeah, happening. Yeah. But I understand that for a lot of people, that total immersion and acceptance and authenticity and openness can be very hard when that experience is being particularly miserable. Mm -hmm. what, are your, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that, huh, the thing that I, I would most try to do would be mm -hmm. to point out to people like just the way in which they are um, huh how, how do I phrase this the, the, the way in which they are valid as a human being even though they are suffering mm. enormously like like um, for example m my last girlfriend Lucy was mm had a lot of issues with depression and mm. and rather than trying to tell her oh it will get better it was just honestly the most beautiful and touching experience of my life to see mm. that she was how honest she was mm. like and that's something you can I, I was able to reflect to her like mm. she j just to see how courageous and honest she was despite being in incredible pain like that yeah that that's kind of like what I'm talking about of respecting Buddha the way she is right now like you don't have to search for a different person mm. to justify the person you are now that's just mm. basically another form of disrespecting Buddha in this mm. moment like to respect the Buddha that you are right now, mm. like ev everyone does have some way in which they are practicing kindness and compassion in this moment, and being honest about it, like just just to survive being that miserable, takes mm. an insane amount of courage, mm. and I think I would focus on just, res just saying, just just reflecting to people the way that they already have valor and courage and love uh, I would focus on reflecting that back mm. at them rather than trying to tell them oh you will be a better person yeah like that's that's honestly a little disrespectful I think yeah yeah, yeah. so connected to this question of hope I think is the question of God okay once again, I'm asking you kind of, you know, you, you didn't want to speak for Zen Buddhism. But if you could, it's not necessarily. Okay. okay. What's Zen's view of God, if any? And mm. what is your personal view of God? Right. I, I almost, I, th there really is not <laughs> a Zen view of God. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you can, I, I, hmm. I almost never hear teachers talk about God. Mm -hmm. Um and when they do, they're talking about kind of the ineffable suchness of this moment, which, mm -hmm. yeah, 
I, I personally do not believe in any personal God. Um, I, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I only believe in the God that exists in this very moment, um, as something that we're constantly in direct contact with. Um, yeah, I, I don't believe in any God that, uh, is away from me. That just, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't see the point of that. That just doesn't even cross my mind. We are now snacking as we are talking. Yeah. The main difference in the audio is going to be the suddenly increased loudness of the crickets uh-huh. in the background. So, uh-huh. ah. Everyone's going to be like, actually, in the beginning, it was gradual because when we started talking, there was barely any crickets. And then the gradual changing of day into evening, the sound of the crickets slowly started. I was like, wow. This is like a really nice organic background to yeah. the podcast. That's great. And then as we moved it over here, uh-huh. it's like boom, it's uh-huh. like sudden. And then when I edit that in, it's going to be boom, uh-huh. wall of sound goes uh-huh. up. Uh-huh. And so we have some explanation of what why that is. Uh-huh. Um, okay. I realized I skipped one question okay. from the talking about Zen Buddhism. Is what is the core meditation practice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you so, sit down, close your eyes, or keep your eyes open, what, what are you doing? Yeah, um, so in Zen, we have a practice called, there's, um, you can say, uh, Zazen. Yeah. That's just the Japanese word for seated meditation. And yeah. kind of the name for the technique is um, Shikantaza, which means nothing but just sitting. So, um, all, literally, all, all you have to do is sit there, and breathe, and uh, there are kind of four things are considered basically the entirety of Shikantaza, and that's uh, upright posture, breathe from the abdomen, keep your eyes open, and uh, let go of thoughts. So basically all you have to do to practice Shikantaza is um, arrange your your body in like a comfortable upright position, and then... Um, Keep breathing and don't get lost in thoughts. And and uh, yeah, and part of it. Zen is not big on, on techniques. Like, I there's no visual. There are no visualizations mm-hmm. like in Tibetan Buddhism. There's not. We don't really do mantra practice. We don't. Uh, so, so sometimes we do, particularly for beginners, like counting the breaths. Um, but definitely not nearly as much as um, like Theravada, um, to Theravada Buddhists. Yeah. And we, we say that it's just like, just sit there and um, j- just being able to be in a stable posture. Um, like again, you're, you're already Buddha. So it's not like you need to practice any sort of technique to become Buddha. It's like just, um, like letting yourself sit quietly long enough to notice that you are Buddha rather than trying to become Buddha so you said let go of thoughts or don't get lost in thoughts what if you do get lost in thoughts mm-hmm. what do you do well I, I mean eventually you'll come to the point when you notice that you're lost in thoughts yeah. which is inevitably yeah. and then at that point you're already practicing and there's no additional effort you need to make 
Because you're, as long as you're noticing what's happening, then you're mm -hmm. practicing Zen. So there is no explicit, um, so I have done like a different form of Buddhist meditation, which is Anapana and Vipassana. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of them. I've heard of Vipassana. Yeah. So those, in those, you explicitly try to bring your attention to some mm. sensory, like in Anapana, you're trying to keep your right. awareness at the physical sensation of the breath at the tip of your nose. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And in Vipassana, you're basically scanning your entire physical body for all the physical sensations. Wow. And anytime that you get lost in thought, you bring it back to this awareness of the physical sensation. Right. So I'm a little bit surprised that there is no... I guess the physical sensations, one of the roles is that they serve as an anchor to which you repeatedly return from mm -hmm. being lost in thought. Right. And that's what you do in those forms of meditation. When you notice that you were lost in thought, right, you're right. like, okay, this is what I was thinking. And then you gently return the mind from the thoughts to this physical sensation. Right. So I'm a little surprised that there is nothing that you sort of bring your mind to when you realize that you're lost in thought. Am, mm -hmm. I, am I characterizing this correctly? Or? That does seem like a correct characterization of the difference. Like, mm. I, I mean, b being, ha having recognized fully and honestly that you are lost in thought, yeah. that is recognizing the reality of that moment. And yeah. it's like nothing else you need to do according to Zen. Mm. Like you're, you're with reality. Like sometimes reality is you being lost in thought. Yeah. I guess I'm still having some difficulty with it, with this idea. And I guess the reason that I'm having difficulty is that for about seven years now, uh -huh. I have been practicing mostly like breath meditation. Mm -hmm. So I can, I mean, I know what it means to, you know, notice that I'm lost in thought. Right. And I'm like, okay, the alternative is something that's physical and sensory so I know okay I can bring my attention to mm -hmm. the breath it is unclear to me because I haven't practiced as much what it looks like mm -hmm. to try to stay continually aware of the thoughts uh -huh. while also not taking the mind to something else that's not thoughts yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know that there's that much of a way to explain that it's like yeah. Um, hmm. But I feel like if I practice this more, I would know more intuitively what you're talking about. Right. The two, the two, the the two modes I think are highly overlapping. Mm -hmm. But in the case that I'm talking about, there's like a more explicit thing that you keep bringing the mind to. Right. Um, but I know that you know. Even as I'm practicing this mode, where you're kind of relying on the breath as an anchor, right. there are these states where you will get lost in thoughts, but the return or the awareness that I'm lost in thought and the return from that is very quick. Uh -huh. Boom, 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 uh -huh. boom. Uh -huh. The cycle becomes like very quick instead of being lost in thought for right. five minutes, you're lost in thought for fractions of, of a second. And then you're coming back again and again. So, so I think that part of the distinction is again like Zen Zen's kind of unwavering emphasis on your like already existing Buddhahood. Mm -hmm. It's like you you actually 
there's the awareness of Buddha mind is always there. Yeah. And w- whether your small mind is aware of it or not. Hmm. And it's like, you can't really... Because it's always there, you can't like make it more aware or yeah. something by like focusing on something. Yeah. It's yeah, like just the fact that you can say, "Oh, I was lost in thought," is proof that there's awareness present. Yeah. And in uh, Zen, it's not like trying. It's like. Learning to trust that there is already awareness. Yeah. Which is kind of a subtle part that gets hard to yeah. describe. So then I feel like I'm starting to hear what seems like an apparent contradiction. Mm-hmm. If we are in Buddhahood already, right? then why uh-huh. even become a Zen monk? Yeah, why yeah. all these rituals? Uh-huh. Why have the uh-huh. big bowl to the left? Why bow? Why sit in meditation? Why not just flop down on the seat? That's, that's flopping Buddha. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That may actually be the single deepest question in Zen Buddhism. I'm not joking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't... How do I even answer that? I I don't feel like I have had, like, a personal insight into this question. I don't think I have understood the answer to that question. Um, one, One thing that a teacher told me is that, like, that's just what Buddhas do to celebrate Buddhahood. It's like, you celebrate enlightenment. Like, you are alive in this moment, you are Buddha, and you celebrate aliveness by, it's just like the natural way to celebrate aliveness once you realize that you are Buddha. Mm. It's like, he compares it to like, when it's your birthday, you don't necessarily, it's it's best to celebrate. It's best to throw a par- party because you are happy, not to make you happy. It's like it just naturally wanting to share with people just naturally flows from being yeah. happy. Yeah. It's like wanting to be practice right speech and and ritual reverence for the everyday objects and and concentration and meditation. That's just like natural desire. Yeah. That, like, once you realize, like, when you see that, you're Buddha. Yeah. It's like, that's just what Buddhas want to do. Yeah. So, I feel like, even if you don't have, like, a ready and a complete definitive answer to that question, mm-hmm. there must be some, like, definite, clear way in you have, in which you have resonated with the practices of Zen Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you would not be dedicating so much time and effort <laughs> and energy all of this time. <laughs> if you're like, hey man, I haven't intellectually figured out why we should be doing this. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's the bottom line, like you just resonate with it and mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't ne- you don't necessarily have to like intellectually explain totally. why it is that you Yeah. Are you bowing, praying, upright posture? Why? Yeah. Why, why is it that? You know? Yeah, I think that for me, probably the biggest part is honestly what to me. I think the the, the word faith feels appropriate. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I've had teachers that I've been interacting with at this point for many years, 
and I, I, I have exposed so many different parts of myself to these people, and I've just been consistently met with respect and um, acceptance of, of so many parts of myself that I've had trouble accepting, mm. and uh, and they tell me to do this, <laughs> and uh, that these are good practices, and um, yeah, I honestly do have kind of like a si- very simple faith, like these are the people that whose example I want to follow, and this is what they, the practices they recommend. Yeah. And it's like, that's it. I'm doing it. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I didn't necessarily want to give you a hard time with that because I no, feel like okay. this kind of a paradoxical question has arisen multiple times for me in different spiritual. Huh. Like, if this is the absolute, if this is the perfect, uh-huh. why try to do any specific aspect of it? Uh-huh. And then the paradoxical answer to that is, why not? That's part of the absolute perfectness expressing itself through you in this particular way mm-hmm. at this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, I don't want to get into like much, much, huh. but but I feel like part of the answer to that is like not intellectual. Right. It's not like, hey, look, here's a proof of why we are doing it. It's just like, yeah. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the book. Okay. So you're writing a book about your experiences. That's right. Is it about your experiences at the monastery? Yeah. 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 It's totally personal. Just yeah. this guy. It's not yeah. about Zen in general. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of my, um, uh, yeah, I honestly feel like my book is totally 100% um, inspired by that reverence of Zen for everyday life, that same yeah. desire not to lie. Like, for, for me, kind of the, the way that that grand theme of wanting to be honest and not lie to myself comes together with Zen is why that resonates so strongly with Zen is because Zen says, like, you are... Buddha in this moment so you don't have to hide who you are because you you're Buddha like that's like the ultimate okay way to be is the way you are right now mm-hmm. and um, so my, my book is is just trying to kind of pull pull back the veils on life in a Zen Buddhist monastery I feel like books about um, people's spiritual autobiographies can can often be just focusing on ecstatic experiences. Yeah, and which is exactly the opposite of what I want to do. So, like, I, I talk about uh, like having horny thoughts while meditating, and like what what's like to learn how to poop with robes on, and uh, yeah. Just that same kind of trust that whatever actually happens is like a worthy part of being alive, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's that's why I try to um, convey in my book by talking about it in a in an open manner. How much are you done with writing it? Uh, I have one hundred fifty pages of a first draft, so there's still a lot to be done. I think that's roughly. How many pages I have of my recently finished first draft of my PhD thesis? Oh, nice! Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh huh. 
exactly are you planning to publish it? Um, like through what avenue? Right. For now, I'm hoping to go through conventional publishing. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's. I don't really know that much about publishing, but it's. I. <laughs> I would kind of like a situation in which other people take care of the business side of things so I can just focus on putting words together. Mm -hmm. But who knows? Like, maybe, yeah, I don't know what that means in practice in terms of control over the creative process and uh, various other things. Yeah. But who knows? Have you decided what to call it? No Mud, No Lotus. No Mud, No Lotus. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no mud, no lotus. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. 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 All, all about being a horny 23-year-old boy in a Buddhist temple. <laughs> trying to find the... Yeah, trying to respect that experience of life. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. You should let me know when that when you're done and it's published. I want uh -huh. to read it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That means a lot. No mud, no all right, a, so new topic. Okay. New topic is the body as the seat of emotional experience. Yes, yes And your yes. subtext was, we are animals, not ah, just intellects. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Right. What does that mean for the way we live our lives? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is also connected to the question of... To me, well, this well, is connected to everything. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. But specifically, the thing that you said it was connected to was, I think there was this book by Pema Chodron that I was reading. Oh. Have you heard of Pema Chodron? Mm -hmm. And I don't remember what the name of the book was. I think something called like The Places That Scare You. Mm -hmm. And in that book, at some point she mentioned something that kind of resonated with me. It's like, I feel like the whole business of the spiritual path can be so like confusing and vague and ambiguous and all of this like dude what the hell are you talking about yeah. kind of thing and so at some point of the book she was like I think one of the bottom lines by all this spirituality is are you at ease mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that kind of resonated with me because I feel like that does truly capture a lot of what the bottom line has been for mm -hmm. my personal spiritual path right. is Am I at ease uh -huh. with what's going on? Mm -hmm. Am I at ease with my presence and the presence of the world and, you know, basically this moment? Mm -hmm. And you said that that question resonates with this topic mm -hmm. of the body as a seat of emotional experience. Mm -hmm. So I want to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that I came to Zen because I... I had some vague, yeah, just feelings of sadness and loneliness that um, weren't really necessarily even connected to anything that was actually happening. Mm. Um, and I feel like where where Zen has has helped has been to show that like the patterns of tension that have been keeping me free and still do to this day keep me from being free. Um, they're like actually like very specific things that 
I am doing with with my body, like, mm. like for basically my entire life, and even to this moment as we're speaking now, um, like I've been feeling like there's kind of a tight, like twisting in my heart and kind of upper chest, like lower neck region, and like th there have been a lot of things around it that have been shifting recently in the past like month in particular. And um, I, I found that when I release these patterns of tension, like it's very subtle, it's, it, again, it, it's just the, it may not sound like what you think of, especially coming from a Western perspective, maybe what you think of as spirituality, but it, it's like, okay, I am tensing my, like, my jaw a lot or something and when for, for example what's been coming up a lot for me recently is like I've been able to slowly kind of release these patterns mm -hmm. and what comes up is just very intense feelings of either anger anger or fear that I've been avoiding probably for my entire life it's like the the, the body kind of has this way of bottling up things that you don't want to feel. And it, it, it's just like when a stream becomes stagnant, like water s stops flowing, like algae and, mm -hmm. and like mosquitoes just start festering. Like your body is the same way with feelings. Mm -hmm. And so it, what, what I've been noticing is that I, I have been very, m my entire life I've been, very resistant to feeling or admitting that I have anger mm -hmm. and like and as I, I release these physical tensions like it will honestly happen to me that I will be <laughs> you're gonna be pissed yes I'll, I'll just be yeah. no reason just pissed for like yeah. 30 minutes straight yeah. like just wanting to like walk around and like slam my fist on a table or something and like the, the freedom that Zen allows you is to like, again, like, this is, it's, th this is the everydayness. It's like, I am tensing my, I don't even necessarily know, it doesn't even matter if you know what the muscles are named or not, but, yeah. like, I'm tensing something in my back. And then, like, that, that tension was there to, like, prevent the feelings from, of anger from occurring in my heart. Because anger is, like, very hot feeling in your heart mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. and when you're able to let that flow then like the, the, the more you can let in negative emotions the more you can let in positive emotions too it's like the same it, it's like the, the whole it's like a valve yeah it's like a valve like you you can't cut off any part of your life without cutting off kind of more than you want you can't like decide I'm only gonna cut off yeah. sad thoughts yeah, yeah because literally like if you decide theoretically like I don't want to feel sad feelings like that will cause you to like contract your body in a way that for example if like a, a dog comes up to to like lick you or like some positive situation then your reaction will be muted. Like you won't be able to spontaneously and quickly like flow with that 
positive situation because like you'll be tensed against whatever mm-hmm. ha- happens yeah yeah hey i'm going to be talking really out of my ass based okay. on what you just said cool but do you need some toilet paper <laughs> no i'm good um it's kind of intriguing that you said that the places of tension are between like your throat and your heart yeah yeah i actually don't know too much about this but mm-hmm. like in the in the indian spiritual practices whatever mm-hmm. they have this chakras in the body mm-hmm. and they denote the different kinds of energies that we embody and at the throat is i don't know exactly what it is but it has to do with your self expression mm-hmm. and a lot of it has to do with your voice but generally with your self expression and you know you have the heart chakra i guess i don't exactly remember what the heart is but i guess the love emotion or vulnerability something like that mm-hmm. and the thing that i'm going to say like so we talk pull it out of my ass is like given your you probably know a lot of this like given your personal history a lot mm-hmm. of the kind of intense negative experiences that you went through when you were a child mm-hmm. was basically being faced with a lot of dangerous consequences right. where you to really fully express yourself right 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 and so the emotions there that would naturally be caused in such a situation would be anger and fear mm-hmm. but the anger on the other hand cannot be fully expressed because of the same you know the situation so that the exists you know right. you cannot express yourself so i don't know it just seems like i'm not very surprised to hear that mm-hmm. you know a lot of those two are the dominant uh, those two are a lot of the dominant um energies and that the place that you're feeling it is like kind of around your throat heart area yeah 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 seems like that's where a lot of bottling up happens yeah i think that's totally right yeah so because i mean you have now you know had like a bit of a career in in uh-huh. zen buddhism yeah would you agree with hema chodron's statement like are do you, do you feel like you're more at ease now i i feel more at ease yeah i definitely don't feel totally at ease mm-hmm. and do you feel like it's fair to say that hmm. that's like a good signature to keep track of or that that hmm. that that what that is what a lot of it comes down to is how at uh, ease am i i I I do feel somewhat resistant to yeah. that as a tracker because again like so, sometimes um <laughs> like when I've been releasing all a lot of different a lot of difficult emotions I have not felt at ease at all and mm-hmm. yet that's felt like very necessary and healthy even yeah and um yeah m- maybe as like in average that might be okay yeah um yeah yeah maybe that's an average that's actually okay yeah 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 i definitely would not get concerned about whether you feel at ease like <laughs> on an hour by hour basis yeah yeah like, yeah no 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 yeah yeah <laughs> no, no, no. okay 
next topic is attachment. Hmm. What do you think the Buddhist doctrine of non-attachment means? Right. Hmm. For me, I feel like it's the doctrine of non-attachment is is about being able to allow any experience to arise because I can accept myself even when I'm in incredible pain. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just being able to have trust being able to trust myself by having lived through, by, by having sat still in the middle of like torturous thoughts, in the middle of terrible circumstances, but being able to trust that I can, on some level, take care of myself and not abandon myself. Mm. And yeah, so not needing to be attached to Drew having to be in good circumstances. Yeah. Like, that, that's one very, that's what comes up for me in this moment mm. about what I have to say about attachment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, kind of related to that is, I sent you this article uh -huh, about uh -huh. my microdosing experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the dilemma that I've been having is, on the one hand, I feel like my psychedelic experiences have opened up a whole new spiritual window. Okay. Like, they have connected me. They have taken me by the neck. Uh -huh. And just, just you know, put my head in this like rushing torrent of spirituality. Uh huh. Uh huh. And wow. so, so in some ways, they have made it like so radically tangible. Uh -huh. Well, tangible wow. maybe is not the right word. Mm -hmm. That I was like, whoa, there's this whole the world is magic and a lot, of, a lot of those things. So I feel like psychedelics have acted as a spiritual gateway for me. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand. So yeah, so in some ways the effects of psychedelics have been the same as the effects of meditation for me. Mm -hmm. But in some other ways, I because of my experiences, I have been a little bit worried that there might be some attachment there. Mm -hmm. In that, okay, this thing is great, let's keep doing it, and then it kind of maybe becomes a crutch. Mm -hmm. So because psychedelic experiences or the experiences of microdosing on mushrooms lets me kind of upgrade my life uh -huh. a little bit more. I guess the deeper fear is maybe it is also engendering a certain intolerance for what life would be like if I wasn't on those drugs. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of the dilemma. Mm -hmm. And in Buddhism, you know, there is this, one of the precepts is don't intoxicate yourself. No intoxicants. Mm -hmm. And when we went to the 10-day silent meditation retreats, this was like one of those things, like, okay. And they have you fill out a form where they ask you, you know, what kinds of intoxicants have you taken in your life? Mm -hmm. Recently, I was actually having a podcast conversation with someone who was a teacher. A Buddhist teacher? Like, he wasn't or... really a teacher. He was like one of, he was someone who kind of guides or not really, he, he's present at the 10-day silent meditation retreat. 
the main teachings come from these recorded videos of like Goenka ji who has passed away mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the assistant teacher I'm talking about the assistant teacher is there to basically you know play the videos just kind of set the timing of things and take occasional questions at certain pretty fine times of the day mm-hmm. and as i was recently talking to him he one of the questions that he asked me at the end was like oh neil i remember in your form you said that you know you have you sometimes you know partake in alcohol and uh-huh. marijuana and 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 mushrooms right. uh, i would really say you know you should you should stop using those intoxicants those, mm-hmm. those are intoxicants and i was like i think i can understand it for the alcohol and the weed but it's harder for me to just accept the definition of mushrooms as intoxicants first of all what does the word intoxicant mean it means something that is toxic to your body right. i don't really think that mushrooms are toxic to your body so maybe a better description there would be something that causes you to be inebriated or like a duller state of mind or like a something that you're like escaping from reality mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i feel like that's not a good description of what psychedelics have in some ways psychedelics have made me more aware right 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 yeah no. they have yeah, no. in some ways they have like slapped me more awake to right. the living breathing magicfulness of right. the world yeah and in fact what i want to do after i finish my phd is i want to go ahead and research psychedelics because it's one of the most interesting things that I can. So when he said that I was like, hmm. Here is a bit of a dilemma. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> How do I square the the protocols of this religious path mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with with uh with really my true kind of spiritual interest in psychedelics. And I remember in the article that I sent you there was this time when I was on a tour of like some buddhist art huh. by and was, the person who was taking us through this tour was a member of the new york psychedelic sangha okay and he was saying you know when they wrote down these precepts it was a long time ago and what they meant by intoxicants does not fit mm-hmm. as a definition for psychedelics they did not mean psychedelics those okay. are both pathways of greater cognitive liberation that was their mm-hmm. sort of manifesto mm-hmm. for why psychedelics is okay So what do you think about this whole quagmire yeah. of attachment versus psychedelics versus spiritual uh-huh. this whole dilemma? Yeah, so so in Zen we also have a a precept not to intoxicate with body body or mind of self or other. Yeah. And uh though in Zen we we do not place a big emphasis on like some sort of literal observance of it. Like the 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 precepts exist in Zen to have you examine your own body and mind they're not there to just be rules for you yeah. to follow necessarily um like um yeah i i would say that um like the, we have the precept on not intoxicating body and mind so that you will wonder like huh am i trying to escape from reality or am i not and i can't answer that question for you you can answer that question for you and if you find that you are using it to escape from reality i would say that you should, probably should not keep using them mm-hmm. and uh but yeah that's not a question i can answer for you yeah um yeah uh, i personally drink alcohol mm-hmm. um i i'm not 
currently smoke weed or use psychedelic substances. I see. Um, yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, Suzuki Roshi, um, who was the founder of Tatsuhara, he, he said that it's okay to use psychedelics, but that he does not, he says that it's in the realm of science rather than in spirituality. Like, in his, in his view, like, spirituality is totally just about, um, like, respecting your current moment, the, who, who you are in the current moment. And sometimes, by, by looking at yourself in this current moment, you do find you need to do things to change, like, part, part of respecting yourself the yeah. way you currently are yeah. is recognizing your needs to do things to improve yourself, like mm -hmm. eat food, like take medicine, whatever. Sit down and meditate. Yeah, sit down and <laughs> meditate. And, yeah. so, and those things are kind of like more in the realm of science, of like technology rather than in spirituality, by, according to this definition. And Suzuki Roshi said it is okay to use psychedelics, but he personally considers it to be the realm of like science, like taking medicine, like rather than like the absolute. But. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of interesting to learn. Yeah. Um, and then what are your views on technology? Because I feel mm. like there's like a similar dilemma there. In, because right. you, know, you, just, you just now said that you can kind of classify psychedelics as like science. It's kind of like technology that we have devised uh -huh. or we have found in nature. Yeah, yeah. And technology by itself, it's kind of a double-edged sword as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And I yeah. feel like a lot of modern day technology mm. is basically devised to escape the reality totally. of the world. Yeah. So what do you think of it? How right, do right, right. you relate to today's technology? Uh -huh. so, so one thing that I often think about, so wherever the dividing line will be between skillful and unskillful means is like a living question that changes for every person every moment. The thing mm -hmm. that I always come back to yeah. is... Um, so, so one thing that I've sort of gradually come to realize is that there's kind of a actually somewhat of a, a tension or perhaps a uh, like a antac somewhat um, uh, like oppositional relationship between comfort and relationship. Hmm. Like, what, if I want to make myself comfortable, the way that I do that is by cutting myself off from things and controlling my environment. Like mm -hmm. I make a room that's with air conditioning and heating so I don't have to suffer the extremes of temperature. Mm -hmm. And that comes at the cost mm -hmm. of um, cutting myself off from kind of the flow of air from nature mm -hmm. and, uh, and like the cha changing patterns of light that mm -hmm. happen when you spend, when you're totally living outside. And sim similarly, yeah, Everything, for, for me, I try to interact with technology just by by being aware of both of those sides. So sometimes, yeah, like, for, for example, um, I told you just before we started this podcast about how I'm growing a garden. Yeah. Like, supermarkets are an extremely convenient thing. They're crazy. Like, you can literally buy tens of thousands of objects <laughs> within walking distance I've come from every corner of the globe but you don't if you don't actually spend the time to um, grow things yourself you're you're cut off 
you don't have you're you're no longer in a relationship, and uh, w with the the cycles of the seasons, with the the way soil smells, the way your local environment affects how you feel and the way plants grow, like for me, I personally try to be very strongly like in this dynamic between comfort and relationship. Like I try to go very strongly towards relationship and like every, <laughs> like as much as my life energy allows, like I try to move in the direction of relationship rather than comfort, mm. like writing my friends physical letters mm. instead of like texting them. Mm. Like, um, yeah, growing my own food. I will sleep with my windows open, like if it's between like 50 and 90 degrees, mm -hmm. like it, it's like very hard <laughs> to mm -hmm. convince me to close my windows mm -hmm. and accept like, mm -hmm. like uh, air conditioning, mm -hmm. which actually at Tassajara for 15 months, I did not have any sort of climate control mm -hmm. between 20 degree mountain winters and 100 degree summers. Like I had no climate control for 15 months straight. Mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, and um, so, yeah, that, that's just something that I feel gives me a lot of meaning is to, um, like, it, it's just kind of our karmic tendency as a society, maybe especially in America, to just go for comfort constantly. And that's, this is kind of my kind of stand <laughs> for the way I want to live my life is like building deep relationships, like cooking food to share with people. Um, yeah, I, I cannot actually stand, <laughs> maybe that's a little strong, but I, I actually find the experience of eating at restaurants off-putting a lot of the time because it, it makes me feel passive. It makes me, I would rather learn to... Um, it's like watching TV. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, like it's, it's just like, having someone pay, paying money to have someone serve you sensual pleasures like the, i i i would much rather learn how to cook my own uh like i i made uh yeah for example for my birthday party recently i made uh crepes for everyone mm -hmm. and it's like the, kind of the meaning of life for me is to like use my creative energies to to care for people in a way that builds relationships with both animate and inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. And f for me, c cooking and gardening are ways in which I really like to do that. Hmm. I think this is actually sort of related in a way that I did not anticipate to okay. the, final, the final topic of uh -huh. this conversation, uh -huh. which is well, it's actually kind of like a segue. Uh, so the intermediate topic is D.H. Uh -huh. Lawrence. And I just kind of like checked him out. This is one of the sort of like artists, writers, figures that you said whose you know, work in life that you, you, you like and you wanted to mm -hmm. talk about. So among the different ones, D.H. Lawrence kind of stood out to me. Mm -hmm. And so... He was in the like early early twentieth century, I guess, mm -hmm. and a lot of his work was about exposing the dehumanizing nature of modernization and industrialization. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, so if you could tell me a little bit more about what makes you interested in DHLs. Yeah. Yeah, for, for me, um, D.H. Lawrence is one of the, the writers and cultural figures I've seen in my life who best understands the way that, um, like, consciousness does arise a, as part of our physical experience. Like, in, in his books, um, like, a, a lot of his books... Maybe I'll just I'll, I'll just stick to one story in particular to give you a more specific um, a more specific image. Mm -hmm. There's this one story called "The Daughters of the Vicar," mm -hmm. in which um, it's a novella around eighty pages long. It's about this um, this small town, small mining town in England, based on where where D.H. Lawrence grew up, and. Um, there's a um, th there's this very uh, posh kind of like petite bourgeois um, family that that's kind of uh, in the in the social class superior to the majority of the people in the town who are coal miners pretty much exclusively. And the daughter of that family falls in love with uh, f falls in love with a man who uh, who's from that kind of lower class, mm -hmm. and uh, hmm. I'm I honestly don't know if I can do this justice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I honestly don't know if, how I can explain that. Yeah, me, me, let, 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 let me try this. D.H. Lawrence, especially, he, he was pretty much the first writer coming out of the Victorian era to deal with the issues of sexuality in a very direct fashion. And for, for him, you, you can see in his stories the way that um, it's just very clear that the way that your kind of ultimate reality, like beyond all physical, um, or beyond any social identity, like mm. is expressed in the way that like love can draw two people together. Um, Like each of these two people in this story are absolutely gripped by by fear mm -hmm. because of the way that their like social class prevents them from uh, from getting together. And then um, he he's very clear about how like the physical act of love and sex like is totally beyond any identity. And which is why it's such a good spiritual practice if you yeah. can calm if you can be intentional about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I actually want to kind of quote the things that you said on this topic. Um, you said that you've been going through a lot of introspection about these topics of love and sexuality. Mm, yes, definitely. What do I want from relationships? Ah, what oh keeps God. me from getting that? 
what is the potential of sex to heal people? Those are all massive questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so when I was with Lucy, uh, the, the woman, British woman that I met at Tassajara, I, I had had, I, despite the fact that I was 24 years old, I had had very little sexual experience at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, yeah, I, I had actually only had sex twice in my life before being with her. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever, <laughs> in college, there were, I, I was very popular. I was like charismatic. I was, I'm like relatively muscular. I, um, I, I was just very energetic and out there. And like girls liked me, and whenever there was actually the chance of mm-hmm. of intimacy, like I, I would get, I would feel the, the same thing in my heart that still is not totally gone, like would just grip me and freeze me, and uh, it's like the it, it feels like the love and sex are so scary at times because they that would mean a total giving up of my to, to, to be with someone naked having sex with someone that's like the ultimate renunciation in a way of <laughs> of like my persona of the of this crazy wild guy who's like who has all these ego formations about how he's doing like the all these serious spiritual activities or whatever either then in college or now as a zen buddhist um yeah nakedness both as metaphor and reality like someone just being able to rest with someone and (laughs) with my penis exposed it's like profound actually and lucy was incredible in that regard She, she was very physically affectionate, very soft and accepting. I remember, um, yeah, I, I, I brought so much tension and insecurity around sex into our relationship. And I remember the first time we were about to have sex, like I, I was very, um, I, I was just not comfortable. And I was trying, we were, we were doing, foreplay for a while of just like me playing with her breasts and like kind of fondling them and whatever and I felt like somehow it was not okay to just rest in that and like I had to start having sex with her immediately and like I expressed that fear to her and um, I remember she said she just said like oh like this is so lovely the way it is right now. Like we don't have to do anything to change this. And um, yeah, kind, kind of my ultimate, like massive insecurities about being, ho- hoping that I'm this, yeah, I, I just have all of these stories about how uh, energetic and wild and uninhibited I am. And then to actually um, be able to give those up and just be able to, to rest without having to do anything crazy or special. Like, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I, I feel like the sexual organs 
are like connected with the deepest parts of our psyches in that way and to have like gentle care for them is like unspeakably healing I don't know if that resonates with you I mean I think it does strike some like kind of intense chords in me which I uh -huh. am not entirely uh -huh. sure that I'm like uh -huh. being able to make sense of in real time okay <laughs> you don't have to but yeah I'd love to hear whenever you do but I feel some echoes personally of what you were talking mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I feel I, I've been trying to start getting get to get back into dating after breaking up after Lucy and I broke up. I've not had a girlfriend since then. And yeah, it's just like it really does feel like a Dharma gate to me because um it's just making it clearer and clearer how much fear I have. Just massive, massive fear. <laughs> and, and yeah, as I've been kind of saying, like being able to notice that and acknowledge it is the way to respect it and liberate it. Yeah. Actually, this is kind of coincidental because mm -hmm. right now in my life, just in the past couple of days, I have been in the middle of a similar conversation okay. with this girl uh -huh. considering, uh, concerning some, maybe not some, maybe, maybe it's not all the same issues, but definitely there are issues of things that I'm like scared of sex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or some aspects of it or something like that mm -hmm. and I notice that it holds a lot of uh, <laughs> like it holds a lot of tension mm -hmm. for me mm -hmm. yeah. so kind of interesting that, uh -huh. uh, you should reflect on that and I feel like I know, at least intellectually, what the way through it is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. even if I may not have like an, you know, lived through it yet. Right. And intellectually, I know that the way through it is vulnerability. Again, mm -hmm. like a lot of vulnerability, mm -hmm. like kind of going into it, being vulnerable, and being as honest as I can yeah. about what these insecurities are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I mean sexuality is of course a very physical thing but in a way I think it is being a physical embodiment of a lot of emotional plays mm -hmm. that are happening yeah 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 Thank you for taking up that path. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I'm still not completely taking it up. I'm still kind of like uh -huh. step, step, step by step. Uh -huh. But I also want to thank you. From the very beginning, I feel like you've been very honest and open and sharing oh about your life. Thank you. And uh, I oh feel like God. at some point, so when I was listening to you, I was like, it's kind of intense to just sit and even, I'm even I don't even have to do anything. I just have to listen to Drew uh -huh. talk. But it's sometimes intense because, uh -huh. wow, because of how like real 
you are being. Oh my god, <laughs> that's the biggest like, compliment yeah. I, I, I can receive. I think. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, wow. So yeah. Thanks for that. Thank you for acknowledging that. Yeah. 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 It's so meaningful for me to to hear that. Um, yeah. And just have yeah. Being real is still scary <laughs> for me, and just to keep having so many loving voices telling me that, mm -hmm. that they appreciate it, yeah, like keeps me going down that path. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like the truth and authenticity is like energizing. It's mm -hmm. kind of like electrifying in a way that uh -huh. like nothing else is. You're like, okay, uh -huh. this is it. Right now, it's I'm I'm I'm, I'm listening to like uh -huh. yeah like truth and like set up and take notice uh -huh. oh my God. <laughs> thank you yeah 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 i think that's partly the reason why i kind of meandered into the path of doing these kinds of interviews mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is because i felt like i was very interested in getting true stories about people's perspectives in life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's something about that that like I feel very engaged with. Mm -hmm. It's like yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so. Thanks for joining Drew and me today in the Room of Lives. Take care until next time. Mm -hmm.